Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, what do you get when you combine two Brits and a Yank, two monster egos, equal parts reggae and punk rock aggression, and a bottle of peroxide? Tonight, Outlandish Damore, the debut album by The Police and one of the seminal albums of the New Wave era. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced its long player 33 and a third RPM microgroove record. The next year, RCA Victor introduced the 7 inch 45 RPM record. This was the beginning of a conflict between a full album and a stack of hits. Downloadable music has only increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This is Vinyl Tap, is about making the case for a deep dive into a full album satisfaction and pleasure come from the full album okay guys we have another big one tonight this is a big debut album what well, i would guess one of the biggest debut albums uh i figured out that when i graduated from high school in 1983 this was the number one band in the world Tony, why is this such a good album? Along with the Cars' first album, this album sort of ushered in a new sort of era of music. And what I mean by that is it's post-punk, literally. I mean, punk started in 77. This was, what, 78, I think, when this came out. And so you got these guys who were really, really talented musicians playing sort of that kind of music, but with that talent behind it. Um, and... and uh, laying the groundwork for a, for essentially the music that was to come, you know? Um, and they fused, they fused reggae, which I think was a little bit more complicated for them to, to, to get into rather than just a straight, straight ahead kind of three chord punk stuff. They fused that with that punk aggression and, and sort of developed a style of their own that, uh, nobody else really, I mean, people might've tried to imitate it, but really the police were the police. Yeah. So you've got, three very talented musicians playing punk rock, which was really designed for people who aren't talented musicians. So first of all, you had uh, Stuart Copeland, who is actually a uh, American. I believe his he was living over in England with his parents at the time. And he just kind of, his dad was kind of a world traveler and he had been playing in various bands at the time. I, don't think he'd been playing any sort of uh, punk rock kind of stuff. I think he was playing more in the fusion realm. He was a progressive rock drummer for Curved Air. Yeah. Then you had uh, probably the most experienced musician of them all, which Andy Summer, who had played in the Animals, an unusual guitar style that was kind of half lead, half uh, rhythm. No surprise, no mystery. And then, of course, you had uh, the front man, the guy who kind of went on to probably have the most successful solo career of the three, Sting. He, at the time, I believe, was a teacher who was playing upright bass in some jazz bands. At the, the United States gets credit for breaking these guys loose because that that whole thing, uh, particularly Roxanne, fell flat 
in uh, England. Then they came over here, and uh, that was a hit. Yeah. So, um, so I know we got a couple of fans from England, and I just like to say, what's the deal? <clears throat> well, <laughs> since, since we brought up Roxanne and their and their single, uh, you know, the first single, whatever, I think it's really interesting to talk about what happened right right before that. So uh, Roxanne was released in England in April of 78 and didn't do anything, as you said. Um, Sir Copeland, who had written most of the early songs, uh, wrote a song called Don't Care that he wanted the police to do. And I think they actually recorded it. But Sting, being the ego that he was, didn't want to do it because uh, he was tired of singing Stuart Copeland songs. But Copeland thought that uh, it had some potential. So he re-recorded it, playing all the instruments, doing all the vocals, and released it as a guy named Clark Kent. And it was released in, huh. I think, June or July of 1978 and charted. And so the first huh. appearance of the police on top of the pops was fronting Stuart Copeland's solo single for Don't Care. <laughs> They're dressed in masks and everything. And he's got makeup on, trying to hide himself because they had this going concern, this band. And, uh, yeah, it was before, before they, before Roxanne even charted, actually before any of their singles charted, uh, Stuart Copeland had a, had a minor hit uh, by himself. Huh. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go through this album. Uh, it looks like nobody anticipated Roxanne being a hit because it's number three and you'd expect to find it either six or one. Um, yeah. number one is next to you. Great way to start a debut album too. I mean, it's just yeah. the, the, you you got the drumming, you got the guitar part, this that stinging guitar part that kind of comes in, and you've got you know that propelling bass, that uh, that pulsing bass that stings. Um, uh, to and be then clear, you got, that's not a stinging guitar part. That's a handy <laughs> guitar part. Is that correct? Jim? Andy Summers guitar. That's an Andy Summers guitar part. That's correct. And Sting's voice. I mean, he's got that helium-sounding, double-tracked-sounding voice. I don't know how he does it. And it's so much fun to sing along with. Yeah. I mean, it's just, a, you know, when you were, when this when this was fresh and we were all significantly younger, boy, was this a yeah. fun, fun band to sing along with. Yeah. I bet, I bet Sting can't sing along with it anymore. <laughs> Stuart Copeland hated Andy Summers' guitar playing on this song. Really? He, he called he called it old wave, <laughs> but he got vetoed. And Andy Summers says he still gets compliments about it. Oh, I love it. I like I like it a lot. I like his guitar yeah. playing. Yeah. It's uh, it's never expected. Right. Yeah. Well, there's nothing obvious or predictable about what what he's doing. Yeah. So I I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and well, what's, that, what's it? What's interesting about him as well is, I mean, when you think about the police, people think about Sting, they think about Sir Copeland, and he sort of gets third billing all the time. But yeah. uh, in more ways than one, he was kind of the glue that held that band together. His maturity, because he was older and able to yeah. be, a, be a, a calming force between those two egos. But then his guitar playing as well was just, just the right kind of guitar playing for the band. Yeah. Well, next to you is an obvious hit, and I think... Uh, the next song, So Lonely, is even more of an obvious hit. It was their third single and didn't do anything. It fell completely flat. Um, 
Really? But they, yeah, it was their third single. Uh, Sting says it was it, it's an obvious ripoff of No Woman, No Cry. In fact, really? later, yeah, later in life when he when he performs it, he he combines the two songs when he performs them together now. So, Tony, uh, it didn't want to hit, but do you think that's a good song? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I'll, listen, I'll I'll uh, full disclosure. I adore this album. I adore yeah. everything about it, including the the songs that aren't that great. I, I adore them. We have a violation. We have a violation. We what have inconsistency. We have an inconsistency, ladies and gentlemen. I have the transcript from the Layla and other assorted love songs podcast. <laughs> I would like to read this for our audience. Oh, no. Hi, I'm Tony. I also hate Layla. It's so repetitive. I can't stand it. It is the most repetitive song in the world. It's terrible. I hate America, Dwayne Allman, and the blues. That's a direct quote from the transcript. Um, would anybody like to look up the lyrics for So Lonely and tell me that that's not repetitive? Well, you know the difference is? It's repetitive in three minutes instead of ten minutes. <laughs> And it's a catchy repetitive. Something like 19 So Lonelies. And how, again, how fun is that to, to sing to, man? This 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 album's great, and that song is great. Ladies I, and gentlemen, I'll I let you I just count the violet. Yeah. I'll let you. I think it's, I think it's my favorite song on the album. It's one of okay. my favorite songs by the police. <laughs> and uh, it's followed by another song uh, called Roxanne. And again, we have some repetition in this song, Tony. <laughs> we do, but I love it. You know, this song was banned. This song was banned because of the subject matter. I mean, I don't, is it that risque that it would be banned in 1978 when it was released? <laughs> but, but it was. That's how far and, we've come. And and you're right about something you said earlier. I mean, you owe it to the U.S. Uh, this this chart. I mean, this song didn't chart really until it hit it hit North America in '79, and then it uh, yeah. went to number 32. Well, I was 11 years old when this song was released, and even I knew what it was about. Or, and we don't want to have to put explicit on this podcast. That's right. Um, supposedly <laughs> Sting. Wait, in case somebody under 50 ever listens to this podcast. <laughs> supposedly Sting at the during the recording sat on the piano. And that's yeah. why that's why he's laughing in the beginning of it. That's what inspired that. Now, that laughing sounds a little kind of forced. So I don't it know if that was something. I thought it was. Um, uh, what's his face from. Uh, all the scary movies. Yeah, I don't know if that's if that inspired Vincent that, like they Price? liked it. But supposedly, Price. <laughs> supposedly, that's what happened. He sat on the piano and uh, and laughed, and then they decided to keep it as part of the song. But I don't know. It sounds so contrived, as you said. It's it's tough to know if that's true or not. One of the in the early days of cable, when for some reason like satellite for the big deal is like you this this network is being carried by satellite so you always is this play. about squiggly line tv because i don't think we should talk about that 
<laughs> it's close. But there was a there was a network called the USA Network. Yeah. And they had this show called Video Concert Hall. And I guess this is like 79 or the summer of 79, summer of 80. And this is before MTV came out. And they, you know, it came on at like 11 at night. And, you know, what else was I going to do? I was 12 years old and it was summertime. And so I would stay up and watch these uh, these videos all the time. And they had some great guys, you know, like Squeeze and, uh, uh, you know, um, Rod Stewart, people in early videos. Well, one of the first videos that I remember seeing was Roxanne. And it, the video bothered me for two reasons. First of all, the the setting is just god awful. As everybody's in red, and the the uh, camera angles look like uh, bad guys' lair in the Batman show. That's got to be in their top five all time hits. Mm-hmm. It ended up that way, yeah. And, I think there's uh, better songs. There's, I think there's much better songs on this album than that. So I, I like that song a lot, but uh, but it was again, really a different sound. It's not, it's not strictly reggae and it's not punk at all. It's a right, really yeah. new thing they did. Preposition, um, a preposition problem. Um, <laughs> she's putting on the red light instead of putting out the red light, and that has always bothered me. <laughs> she don't have to put on the red light. Well, you're not that none of them put on a red light. They put it out in front of the house. Uh, I, I got you. Uh, I mean, I'm talking to you. third. This is not first. Yeah, I don't know. I've not been. I don't know what you're talking about, Doug. So <laughs> you have to live. Um, I think I, I will say I think his vocals on this song are great. It's growly. It's kind of uh, it's not really. I mean, there's a couple other songs where it hits that, but it's sort of growly throughout this whole this whole song. And I've always really liked his vocals on this song, even though I think there's better songs on the album. Uh, Sting's voice is recognizable, recognizable immediately. It reminds me of Stevie Winwood with the high kind of uh, very yeah. unusual, except I like Stevie Winwood's voice. Sting to me sounds like he's being choked while he's singing. And I've never liked his voice, and I know I'm in a minority on that. Uh, I like also, I, I think I don't like Sting because he's good looking and he looks like an uh, a model. And There's I've plenty of reasons not to like Sting other than he's good looking. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite yeah. reason not to like he's other men. He's kind of a jackass. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, uh, Stuart Copeland was too. And uh, yeah, I got to I got to share with you an observation I made. Because I just started thinking about the breakup of uh, of the police. Um, the last album we did was a Dire Straits album, and did you two notice the parallels of these two bands? Both had the debut in '78. Mm-hmm. Both eventually sold over a hundred thousand albums. Both had their time as the biggest band in the in the world. Both had mm-hmm. Sting sing mm-hmm. on a song. <laughs> I did. I didn't yeah. think of that one. Both yeah. had um, they had one artist that uh, overshadowed the others by a lot. Yeah. And um, if the if Dire Straits had quit after Brother in Arms, their experiences with albums would have been exactly the same. Oh, that's interesting. Because uh, yeah. that's if Brothers in Arms would be equivalent to a synchronicity. synchronicity. Yeah, and, that's uh, interesting. They went one more. I guess they had fewer conflicts, but um, the two bands have a lot in common. They don't sound anything alike, but 
mm-hmm. but it's it's an interesting thing and i i, I noticed it uh, probably wouldn't have noticed if we hadn't done them back to back i um i have this great video that a friend of mine sent me he used to work for pop-up videos uh, it's probably on youtube now but at the time it was and he sent it to me on vhs and it's it's martha quinn interviewing the police during the synchronicity tour and uh it's sting and uh sting and andy summers and stuart copeland they're sitting at a table on the other side of her andy summers is between stuart copeland and sting i don't even remember it's been a while since i watched but sting says something andy or stuart copeland throws his drink in sting's face they run off camera chasing each other and you just see andy summers standing there kind of shrugging his shoulders and martha quinn's trying to do the interview and all you see is sting chasing stuart copeland around in the background (laughs) trying to trying to kill him it's awesome i saw that too i didn't know that was an mtv uh (laughs) <laughs> and it, uh, the, the, what's what's her name again martha martha Mar- quinn martha quinn martha quinn is a vj from mtv for the young people out there mtv was music television it actually had music on it at one time that's right <laughs> next song is uh, a hole in my life about this one. um nice little chorus there but not a whole lot else i can say yeah. about it well, uh, second longest uh song on the album but um yeah. i don't i don't think it's interesting no not very interesting then, song it's number five is um peanuts and that is by far my favorite song on this album I love the fact that 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 the word the word peanut is not mentioned at all until the very last part of the outro when he's yeah. screaming it at the top of his lungs. It's just great. It reminded me of that. What was a Thelonious Monk uh, salt 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 peanuts? peanuts. Yeah, made, made me think of that. I'm saying it. I I heard this album before I ever listened to Thelonious Monk. It's another thing I should add is this is one of the first fifty albums I ever bought in my whole life, and I haven't listened to it maybe in probably uh, 25 years. And when I started listening for this podcast, I knew all the words. I knew everything about it. And that was in my brain. (laughs) I I have a question for you. Who's the loneliest monk? That's that's been a subject of controversy for a, a long time. So, Jam, did you say you don't like peanuts? No, I love peanuts. This is my second yeah. favorite song in the album. It's, that's it's that's a, it's absolutely so my favorite song, and it's real clever. And the guitars are oh, yeah. interesting. The drums. It's so oh. funny. These guys were trying to hide. They're these great musicians playing punk rock. Yeah. They're they're so far oh. above any punk uh, rock guys. Okay, so uh, then we flip over to side two, track six, which is usually also a hit. And, and we was. have I Can't Stand Losing You. I guess you'd call it cowardice, but I'm not prepared to go on like this. I can't, I can't, I can't stand losing. It was their first, it was their second single and the first one that charted. It hit number 42. Wow. So Roxanne comes out. Uh, 
I think so. It might be the UK, but Roxanne comes out, doesn't do anything. Stuart Copeland actually has a minor hit before them, and then this comes out and actually charts. It's a great song. It's a great song. Yep. It's yeah, that it's it. that it hits that sweet spot between uh what they're what kind of what they're trying to do with this punk rock attitude and that that reggae infused, you know, it's just it's just the absolute to me the perfect version of that realized. Yeah, and I like it when that um the I can't remember which verse it is, maybe the second or third time they go to the verse where they just keep it real low and Sting says all those this is my last goodbye and oh yeah um, the drums coming in on that yeah then the drums just start coming that just yeah that's a piece of brilliance there can we take a moment and talk about Stuart copeland because um i don't think he gets enough credit for from the the hoi polloi for what he did for this band i mean this was his band sting of course overshadowed him but uh the, the important thing is he's the one that put this band together and had the vision and then this enormous talent that Sting had yeah. kind of overshadowed everything. It was Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother, who kind of had the um, whole idea of the band and uh, how to market them and all of that. You, you can't underestimate how much uh, Miles Copeland helped the police out, and he went on to have a very successful career as a manager. But well, he found he uh, also founded IRS Records. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Stuart Copeland is—is is there such thing? I mean, I'm going to say something. I'm not a musician, so I don't know if this is a case or not, or some a, a thing. But he seems—he seems like he may be the most musical drummer in rock. Um, and this is this is coming from a Rush fan, but I—I I, my favorite drummer, rock and roll drummer, is Stuart Copeland. The songs are not the songs without his drumming, but they're not the only thing there. It's not like they're so it's so busy that that's all you're listening to. It's just it's right. but boy, is it a joy to listen to him play the drum. He's he's he does something that's really hard. He makes the drums entertaining in themselves without taking anything away from the rest of the band or the song. Yeah. 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 Overpower song ever. One of the things he does is he may be the fastest hi-hat player i've ever oh, heard and it's just sweet hearing it and he hit the way that he plays hits the snare drum it the a lot of guys just kind of hit it with the end of the stick he hits it with almost like almost every time he hits the snare drum it's like a uh a rim shot and a, a heavy hit on the snare itself and it's just it that's why i think gives it a very unique sound and it, the way that he plays it he doesn't play it like a strict rock drummer he plays it plays drums like a uh, a jazz drummer but the way he holds the sticks we probably could go on all night about about him i think i would listen to this record without any other instruments just to hear the drummer <laughs> yeah well yeah. they're 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 fantastic yeah. uh, truth hits everybody this to me sounds like a hit also it i mean the the album has lots of those where you think how is this not how is this not played more often this is one of those songs absolutely um you know more i think more leaning towards that the kind of punk thing they were trying to go for Um, when i was a kid i'd walk this is going to sound like grandpa talking but i would walk (laughs) three miles to the record store 
in the snow. <laughs> it was uphill on the way there. It was downhill on the way back. But I would walk 30 miles to get the record, and then I would have the liner notes memorized before I got home. And then yeah. for the next month, I did nothing but listen to my brand new album. Yep. And and this is one of those albums. And that's why I know after all these years of not listening to it, I know all the words. I know what's coming next. I I have the whole thing memorized. And yep. I feel sorry for kids now because they go, oh, I like that song. And they download that. Oh, I like this song. They download yeah. that. Or yeah. they don't get these deep relationships with albums anymore. And it's it's a shame. And yeah. and and you, you you make a valid point there. I mean, this was this was not a hit. I mean, a single. It wasn't a single. So if you didn't own the album, you didn't know about this song. You That's right. Song. But everybody bought albums back then. Speaking of criticizing everything that comes after you, the next song <laughs> is called "Born in the Fifth. I think this is the ultimate a- anthem for to the the ultimate baby boomers anthem and their yeah. sort of destructive attitude about the generation that came before them you know the lyrics of the song are something else you know it's all about i mean perfectly summed up and we were the class they couldn't teach because we knew better i mean that's a mm-hmm. if that's not a baby boomer i don't know what it is. That, <laughs> is, he, yeah. is he making fun of himself or is he serious about that I, well, you know, it's funny because it could be probably making, now he would say, oh, I was just joking, <laughs> but I don't know about when he well, was I think, a young man. I think yeah. if you're embracing that punk attitude, you had to have a song like this, right? One that yeah. sort of talked about the, you, you know, we're the young generation. We're going to, we're going to be whatever. But, uh, yeah, yeah this, this is the one song that gets me a little bit because the lyrics are just so, I don't know if, if they are tongue in cheek, it's lost on me. It's still a great song. I love the music to it, but well, it's just a little much. If it were my album when I was staying and I was, what is he now? Is he 70 something yet? Probably. I would be saying, Oh yeah, yeah. That was tongue in cheek. I wouldn't. (laughs) It's, it's so (laughs) overbearing. It's so sophomore in college. I know everything now. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good tune. I mean, it's a, yeah. Yeah. If you can not not uh, listen to it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> don't listen to words too closely. That tune was in a different language that I didn't speak. I would really like it. Be my girl, Sally. Oh, boy. This what? is the one that if if I were staying, I think I would try to blame this on one of my bandmates. <laughs> well, I think well, you can, actually. Yeah. yeah. That's can Andy you- Summers. Yeah. Yeah. The best 45 seconds of this album are the first 45 seconds of this song. And then <laughs> why? Just why? No, you're 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 so right about this. I mean that that little the first uh, Andy Summers first lead vocal just torpedoes this song in a way that isn't necessary yeah Yeah. oh just what was he think what's the spoken word crap i mean why why so here's the thing i think they could have done they could have made this like a two and a half minute long song that with the be my girl and the and the nice the the not naughty verses and then they could have stuck the whole spoken word thing at either the beginning of the song or at the end of the song but it there's it, it destroys the whole song 
by putting it right in the middle. I, I yeah. don't understand. Okay. I, I, I need to clarify for the listeners at home who may not be familiar with this song. It's a nice little song about Be My Girl. And then in the middle of it, you find out he's talking about a blow-up doll. Uh, <laughs> and it's a poem about a blow-up doll. It is uh, not funny. Mm-mm. It is not edgy. It is nothing more than it sounds like a junior high kid. Uh, it really, really does. It but is, and you just, really embarrassing. But are you speaking about that? Are you looking back on that honestly as a guy your age now or when you were listening to it when you were, you know, 10, no, 12 years old? 100 percent a guy my age. Now, when I own this album, I'm quite sure I thought it was funny. Yeah, it, it I reminds think so. me of a Monty Python something <laughs> or another. I, I hated yeah. it. I remember the. I remember the when I heard it. I just went, "What is this?" I didn't even understand. I, you know, well, your father was kid. a Methodist minister, Joe. Right, being a preacher's kid from <laughs> West Texas, I'm pretty sure I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on, and I just had to go get back to the song. Father. Get back to the song. Why does he have yeah. to blow up his girlfriend, Daddy? <laughs> I, do, I do think I do think you're probably on the out on the odds uh, on that jam. I think most most guys <laughs> listen to this when they were, you know when this album came out, if they were, you know, teen, <laughs> early teens or preteens probably thought this was hilarious. Well, uh, I'm uh, sure that's true. Cause I was that way. And that's probably why I hate it so much is because it reminds me of what a idiot I used to be. <laughs> All right. Let's anyway, get away from that song. Cause I, I don't yeah. feel very good about myself, even just thinking yeah. about it. All right. So this last song, Did I, anyone I, say I, that word? Masako Tanga. This to me is the band not being able to help themselves. Uh, It's like, okay, we're now, it's the end of the album. We're all very, we're significantly more talented than we're playing off to be. So let's kind of just show that as we're, as we're occurred to me when I was listening to that. It's, it's like, okay, we're going to pull the curtain back now. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look what we can do. Look what we can do. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels yeah. like to me. It feels like them saying, "Okay, you've got a you've got a jazz fusion bassist. You've got a guy who was in the Animals and the Soft Machine, and and then you got you know a guy who played in a, a progressive rock band. We're not punks, really. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's show what we can do. You know that that song is five minutes and forty two seconds long. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked to find out that it is under ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's not a bad song, um, but uh, it's a hodgepodge song. You're just, it, it is a they, hodgepodge song, but it's, I, it's right after the most unnecessary song on the album, and you're already <laughs> sensitive. And here they come with, "Look at this! Look at this!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't change yeah. my love for this album, though. No, oh, it's a great album. It's a great jumping off point for this band. It it, yeah. it just comes out screaming, and you can kind of see. The influence, the reggae influence, stayed around for a quite a pretty good while. They weren't just, you know, paying lip service to it. They just weren't trying to jump on the bandwagon. Um, and they, you know, they, the musicianship's great. They're a fantastic uh, threesome. Did you, do you guys know why they're all blonde? Something about a double net commercial, right? 
Yeah, they got tapped for Wrigley Spearmint Doublemint or whatever, and and they were in an ad, and Wrigley didn't think they looked punk enough, so they talked them into bleaching all three of them bleaching their hair, and uh, and then I think they ended up doing the video for Roxanne with that, and just ended up keeping the look. Yeah. But uh, that there's no evidence of that video of that commercial ever airing. You can't find it anywhere, but supposedly the band members swear that's what happened. It's probably their manager wanted them to look like that and just made that whole thing up. Probably. Yeah, probably. You know, uh, this band went on to be enormous, and I guess the uh, last uh, album was the biggest one, and it had that um, every breath you take, and <laughs> I hate that song, but I... I <laughs> I learned that one fourth of Sting's royalty incomes comes from that song. Who's the guy that did that? That covered it. The rap I guy. I, I think he just sampled it. I don't think he covered it. He just sampled anyway, that part of it. Sting ended up with like a hundred percent of the royalties from that because he didn't follow the rules, and his lawyer went in there and just <laughs> wiped the guy out, man. And Sting made tons of money off of that deal. Well, you know, Stuart, Stuart was in, they were in London when you were asking about saying his dad was a world traveler. His dad was a CIA operative. And that's that why right? he was, yeah, that's why he was in London. Evidently, his dad was a fairly well, well thought of conservative, uh, you know, mid 60s conservative <laughs> thinker. He wrote a couple of books. He was involved in the National Review. And wow. yeah, they were in London because that's uh, where they ended up. But one thing I want to say about this album that during this time, you know, you're talking about the punk scene, then there's that post-punk scene. There was this kind of band that kind of came out of that CBGBs or Knitting Factory kind of uh, New York sound, like television, Talking um, Heads, Talking Heads. I mean, I like Joe Jackson, and you know, this album just pretty much typifies that sound where it's just, there's really not a whole lot of layers to it. That sound that Joe Jackson sort of look sharp sound where just the instrumentation was very sparse and the music just, the, the vocals just kind of were piercing. You just don't hear a lot of albums like that anymore. Yeah. It was that, that post that sort of late seventies. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was rock and roll trying to, to deal with, uh, it's, this sounds so so sort of whatever, but um, trying to deal with the excesses of disco and progressive rock at the same time. Yeah, you know, yeah. Stri stripping things down. Right. But but yeah. with with the bands you mentioned, unlike the Ramones, who didn't really they weren't like talented in the sense of being musicians. Uh, the rest, I mean, television, Talking Heads, The Police. Those, uh, we were talking about people who knew their way around an instrument. They just decided they wanted to go the route of kind of, re, you know, yeah. stripping yeah. things down. Just do it four guys in a room. Yeah. It's almost yeah, like a, a bunch of very primitive Neanderthals stormed the gates of disco, knocked them down, and bloodied <laughs> themselves all over the field. And then slightly more sophisticated people followed them. And came in yeah. and did real rock and roll again. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember the disco days with the. Uh, yes. I was listening to my pop station and it turned into uh, Disco 98 and I was distraught 
but it was one of the greatest <laughs> things that ever happened because it split pop music in half and serious yeah. pop music went in or serious music went into a different direction. Uh, mm-hmm. And I went with that and it really, yeah. really helped me uh, get into deeper music. Well, Tony, we've learned a lot this evening, but there's so much more we don't know. What do you have for us tonight? Well, I, it's it's no uh, no secret. I've talked about this before. I, I'm a lover of all things power pop. There's a band out of the UK, um, Ireland in particular, named Pugwash, P-U-G-W-A-S-H. Um, they released an album in 2017 called Silver Lake. This is the fun that we had. slab of Beatlesque, you know, close-knit harmony, jangly guitar, power pop. These guys don't get anywhere near the the, the um, attention they deserve. But uh, if you like that kind of stuff, if you like tuneful music with uh, jangly guitars and nice orchestration and good harmony and leaning towards the McCartney-esque side of, of the Beatles, then you'd like this. This guy, the lead singer of this band, um, Thomas Walsh, Andy Partridge from XDC fell in love with the guy. So that should tell you something there. Anyway, highly recommended. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, it's the Neglected Album Show, where Tony, Doug, and I will each be bringing forth two albums that we think have been overlooked by the music cognoscenti and the buying public at large. We're on Twitter. This is Vinyl Tap at Tapping Vinyl. Or you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Leave us a note. Tell us what albums you'd like for us to uh, take a look at. So for our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Schlegel, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. Also reminding you, that you don't have to put on the red light. You know, uh, the No Woman No Cry is famous for being the most misinterpreted song in all of uh, music history. Yeah? Yeah. Everybody thinks it's saying, uh, if you don't have a woman, you won't cry. But he's really saying, no, woman, no cry. He's trying to get her to quit. <laughs> and I think all the men out there can understand that.